morning, everyone. My name is Andy Musser. I serve here at Grace as the leader of our college age ministry. And I just wanted to welcome you all and thank you for joining us on New Year's Eve Sunday. Now, I recently read that uh, attendance on New Year's Eve Sunday, about 15% of Americans attend New Year's Eve Sunday service. And that's down from about 35% on average, so 20% less. It makes a lot more sense why this is a Sunday they asked me to speak, right? <laughs> Damage control. Now, when I was first uh, considering what topics to speak on today, uh, I had a few different things in mind with today's being one of them. And then I realized after prayer and consideration that the immutability of God was the perfect topic to talk about on New Year's Eve. I mean, what do you, what do you think about the immutability of God is the characteristic that God does not change. So what's the connection between God not changing and New Year's? Resolutions, exactly, thank you. It's a time, I think in a time where so many are resolving to change, that it's the perfect opportunity to contrast our changing nature against the unchanging nature of God. Now, when I told some family that I was going to talk about the immutability of God, they said, oh, that's a pretty big topic. And I said, yeah, you're right, it is. But I've gotten until the ball drops, so I think we've got enough time. <laughs> now, if you've brought your Bibles with you, please open them to Numbers 2319. It's going to be one of a few main passages we're going to cover today. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, go ahead and just type that into your phone in Google, and you'll be able to find it pretty easily. Now, like I mentioned, this time of year is it's all about change. Right? It's all about people making resolutions to improve themselves. Well, sometimes resolutions don't really constitute any real change, but so far, I haven't heard of anyone resolving to make themselves worse. Right? I'm, no resolutions of, I'm going to exercise less, I'm going to get less sleep, I'm going to eat more carbs, and I'm going to spend all my money. In fact, the top three resolutions across the surveys are all health-related, and then uh, the fourth one's typically personal finance. So. I just wanted to get a, a quick show of hands here. How many of you have made a resolution this year? Okay, if none of you have, I have some suggestions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How many of you that have made resolutions are planning on waiting to the last possible second? Right, 11, 59, 59, 59, and then that's when it kicks in. Okay, it's all right. How many of you have ever made a resolution and subsequently broken it? That's right, yeah, a lot more hands. And how many of you have actually accomplished a resolution? Fewer, nice, okay, very good, very good. Okay, so now we have a general idea of what things look like for us here. I thought I'd share some statistics, right? Keep in mind there might be some variance between surveys, but generally they agreed for the most part. 38.5% of U.S. adults make resolutions every year, okay? Let's take a look at that a little deeper. 59% of young adults ages 18 to 34 make resolutions. This is the largest group group of resolution makers. And then close behind that is 54% of parents with children. Now, these all make sense to me, right? You're young, you're hopeful that you can change, you have a lot of room for improvement, and as you get older, you figure either you can't change or you've got it figured out, right? With age should come wisdom. And then there's the group of parents with children. And as a representative of this group, I can tell you I never have my parenting act together. And so there's a plethora of resolutions to choose from. Now, let's get to the really fun part. 23% of those who make resolutions quit in the first week, and only 36% make it past the first month. 64% of those who make resolutions fail within a month, and overall, only 9% actually follow through and achieve their resolution. 
we're bad at this, aren't we? Like us as humanity, we are bad at change, bad at improving ourselves. I mean, the struggle is real. The majority fail, and almost two-thirds fail within a month. But regardless of success, we can see the large percentage of the population wants to change. They, they want to have personal improvement. Now, of course, these statistics, they're just related to New Year's resolutions. I think we can all agree that oftentimes those are made half-heartedly, right, with not really any plan to follow through. Sometimes at the literal last minute you make them. That said, New Year's is not the only time where people change, right, or attempt to change. In fact, the field of psychology is largely dedicated to the study of change. There's numerous studies on mental health, how people develop uh, psychological disorders or how they uh, can improve these issues. Just think of the various programs dedicated to affecting change, right? Treatment for depression, treatment for addiction, treatment for eating disorder. Now, many are not born with these disorders, but they develop them later in life. They change. Uh, according to a study by the National Institute of Mental Health, major depressive disorder can develop at any time in life, with the average age being 32 and a half. Or addiction, for example, very few are born with an addiction, but 10% of U.S. adults develop an addiction later in life, and 9%, uh, 10% will develop alcoholism, and then 9% an eating disorder. Now, those are just examples of changes related to health or mental health. And obviously, large percentage of the population, they never struggle with these issues. But maybe they've gone, undergone a change of a different kind, change of opinion, or change in beliefs. Let's take political party affiliation, for example. Uh, somewhere between 5 to 20% of Americans change political party affiliation at some point in their life, and maybe more than once, right? And another big change that we see is the percentage of Americans who previously identified as Christian but no longer do. You may be familiar with what's been labeled as the deconversion or the deconstruction movement, right? There's been, some, there's been several prominent names uh, in Christian culture over the past several years that have walked away from the faith. And not only that, but they gave extended details as to why they walked away from the faith. And what we've seen is that around 23% of Americans who were raised Christian no longer identify as Christian. It seems kind of maybe like a small number, but it gets a little bit more startling when we look at this generationally. 44% of millennials that were raised Christian have walked away from the faith. And then 65% of Gen Z that were raised Christian no longer claim to hold those beliefs. And religion and politics are just a couple of very noticeable changes in a person's belief system. Right? We also change our opinions on other things fairly often. Right? This can be the result of receiving more information than we had when we first formed our opinion. Uh, or maybe it's being convinced of an opposing view because of an emotional argument. Uh, or maybe you were peer pressure. Or it was just convincing rhetoric. Regardless of what actually causes the change, though, I think we all like to claim we were enlightened, right? No one likes to say, like, yeah, this is my stance because I was pressured into it. No, that's what you say, what your stance was, you changed from. Now, I think that we can all agree that we are fickle people and we can change our minds and opinions more often than we would really care to admit. Okay, let's look outside of our minds and examine the physical aspect of ourselves. Take the medical field as a whole, right? If our bodies didn't change, we wouldn't need doctors, right? And as bleak as it sounds, our bodies undergo constant change. From the moment you're born, you start dying. And this is just what you call regular change. There's also sickness and ailments that cause other unwanted changes. 
And doctors just seek to delay that slow change towards the grave. Well, what else? What else can we look at that is a study or industry revolving around change? I mean, practically everything, right? Higher education, the goal to attain more knowledge, changing what you know. The fitness industry, the goal to get in better shape or prevent yourself from getting into worse shape. Okay, tech industry, changing the way we work, making things faster, easier, more convenient, maybe. Now, obviously, these different categories of change are not all equally important. But I think they all share a common thread. And that's the change that we see is that of moving from one polarization to another. Okay, moving from good to bad, right? A healthy mind developing an addiction, maybe bad to good, someone overcoming that addiction. Moving from right to wrong, a correct opinion to an incorrect one. Or moving from wrong to right, liking pineapple on your pizza to not being totally insane. <laughs> There's also the case of moving from good to better or bad to worse. So oftentimes I think these changes are a little less noticeable. Uh, good to better, right? A fit person going to the gym. Hey, you look great. You looked good before, but now you look better. Or uh, bad to worse, a serial killer who now takes two spaces parking at Kaiser. Now, while all of these scenarios, they vary in magnitude, we can ultimately see that change, real change, is on a spectrum with perfection at one end and utterly flawed at the other. Perhaps some of these statistics or examples I gave uh, help highlight the fickle nature of humanity, that none of us are perfect and many don't even know what true perfection looks like. Perhaps if we can keep our changing nature in mind, we can see why it's so important and so wonderful that we have a God that does not change. Okay, that should have been more than enough time for you to get to Numbers 23, 19. You probably could have drove home, got your Bible, and come back. So if you're just here, you haven't missed a lot. Okay, so beginning in 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now, what I think is interesting about this verse is that it was delivered by God, not through an Israelite, but through an enemy of Israel. God chose the false prophet Balaam as the one through whom he would deliver this message. So let me briefly set the stage. Okay? God told the nation of Israel that they would inherit the land of Canaan, the promised land that he would use the nation of Israel to judge the wicked and perverse nations that lived within its borders. However, after Israel sending some spies in saw the inhabitants, they were afraid, and they were too afraid to enter into the land. And this is in spite of all of the miraculous displays of power that God had done, right? The plagues to rescue them from slavery in Egypt, the parting of the sea, miraculously providing for all of them. Now, as a result of their lack of faith and subsequent disobedience to God, the Israelites, God condemns the adults, ages 20 and up, to wander in the wilderness and die. They would not enter the promised land. So now here we are in Numbers 23. The older generation is dying off and the younger generation is coming into adulthood. And the nation of Israel is encamped on a plain to the north of Moab. And at this point, there's about two and a half million Israelites. And the king of Moab, he sees them. And he's starting to get a little nervous. He sees this massive group of people that need a home. And he saw that they had just defeated another nation, the Amorites. So the king of Moab, King Balak, he does what any good pagan nation king would do. And he looks to hire a spiritual hitman to go take him out. So he sends some of his men to hire Balaam. 
Now, Balaam's what we would refer to as a false prophet, and he tries to make contact with God, the God of Israel in an attempt to get the God of Israel to curse the Israelites. Now, he must not be too surprised when he gets a response from God. He's not surprised that he gets one, but he is surprised about that response. However, because it's not the one he wants, right? When, when Balaam asks God to curse the nation of Israel, God instead refuses and blesses them, using Balaam as the mouthpiece for that blessing. Now, this happens three times. And each time that Balaam goes to ask God to curse the Israelites, he tells the king of Moab, King Balak, to set up these seven altars with sacrifices, sort of in an attempt to earn favor from God, right? To bribe him. However, this doesn't work. And during his second attempt, God has Balaam deliver this message to King Balak. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Balaam thinks that he can bribe God with altars and sacrifices to persuade him to curse Israel. But God made a promise to his people that they would inherit this land, a promise first outlined in an unconditional promise with Abraham. And despite the constant rebellion of the Israelites, the grumbling, the complaining, the falling into idol worship, and arguing with God's plan, he brought them out of Egypt and he is for them. God will not be persuaded to go back on his promise. Okay, so let me circle back around to the, the main verse of this section, 2319. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? There are a few things to make note of uh, in this before we move to the next verse. God is not like us, right? God does not lie. And what's another type of lying? Not keeping your word, not keeping your promises. And the last part of that verse, or has he spoken and will he not make it good, means God will always make good on what he says. God always keeps his promises. Something we can see in the fact that the nation of Israel exists today, despite the seemingly endless supply of opposition to them. From this, we also see that God does not repent, or maybe your version said God does not change his mind. Right? This, is to say, this isn't to say that God is stubborn, unwilling to change his mind, even if he's proven wrong. Right? I think we all know someone like that. Maybe you're married to someone like that. Maybe my wife is married to someone like that. No, this means that God is never wrong, and that's why he would never change his mind. And he does know wrong, which is why he would never repent. There's no need to. We also see that God could not be bribed into changing his mind. And maybe this seems like a strange idea, like, of course you can't bribe God. But think of things that maybe you said or thoughts you've had along the lines of, God, if you make me successful, I will give all my money to the church. Or if you get me out of this, I promise I'll devote myself to you. Now, obviously, these aren't the same as offering sacrifices in hopes of cursing your enemies. But I think you get what I'm saying. It's us offering something to God in hopes of him doing what we want. However, aside from the fact that there's nothing we have that God needs, God is never going to do anything that runs contrary to his sovereign plan. So what do we see from this verse? 
There's a few takeaways. First, God is unchanging in his promises. Next, we see that God does not change his mind. And last, God does not change his plans. Okay, we're going to move on to Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Malachi towards the end of chapter 2. Now, again, for some context here. Malachi is one of the minor prophets since the last book in the Old Testament. It takes place about four, a little over 400 years before Christ, right? Between Malachi and Christ, there's this period of silence. And at this time, the Jews are no longer a sovereign nation. They're living under the rule of the Persian Empire. And this comes after years of turning away from God, falling into idol worship. And as a result of that, God allowed them to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Now, after 70 years of captivity under Babylon, the Persian Empire comes in and overthrows them. And the leader at the time allows for some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, this is clearly an act that's orchestrated by God. So after the temple and the city walls are rebuilt, the Jews return to worshiping in the temple, some of them. Malachi takes place about 100 years after the temple is rebuilt. And now even after living in Jerusalem, worshiping at the temple for almost a century, they still do not choose to follow God with their whole hearts. They stop tithing. The priests are accepting defiled offerings. Uh, the men are divorcing their, their wives and taking foreign wives who then lead them astray. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of their disobedience, Israel, they still are complaining to God. We see in Malachi 2.17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, despite their lack of obedience to God, they choose to complain that God is not punishing the wicked, that God is allowing evil men to find success, and that God is in fact pleased with them. They want God to judge and punish the wicked in their timing. But how does God respond? Well, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, God foretells of the coming Messiah and how he will purify the people in the refiner's fire, and he tells them of his coming judgment. In verse 5 and 6, he ends with a reminder of his promise. So beginning in verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver." so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now here we get to the promise in verses 5 and 6. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. 
God speaks of the coming Messiah and the judgment to come. They're asking for God to deal justice, and he assures them that he will, but it may not be pleasant for them. But he reminds them in verse 6 that though he will refine them in the fire, he has not changed. He remembers his promise, and he will not destroy the sons of Jacob. Now, maybe this sounds a little bit like a conversation either you've had with your kids or as a kid with your parent. Uh, maybe your kid has complained. They complain about not, something not being fair, right? Easy example. They want something, and you didn't give it to them, and they're complaining that you don't love them because they didn't get what they wanted, but their sibling did, and you kindly remind them of all that you have given them, the food on their plate, the roof over their head, a place to sleep, and that they deserve to sleep outside in the yard. But you love them and you promised them you wouldn't do that. It's not perfectly analogous, but God is telling them that they think he has changed because he's not dealing justice on the wicked according to their timing. When in fact, he does not change and he will deal justice. His unchanging nature is evidenced by the fact that despite Israel deserving harsh judgment and destruction long ago, he preserved them. So what are the takeaways here? So first, we see that God is the one who states his unchanging nature. So we see God's position on this doctrinal statement. God himself has stated he does not change. Next, we also see that while our perception of God can change, God does not. And last, we see that God does not change in regards to his justice. Now, the last main verse I want to focus on is in the New Testament. It's going to be Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to be beginning in the middle of verse 5. For the majority of the book of Hebrews, the author is making a case for Jesus' superiority, right? His superiority to the angels, to Moses and the promised land, to the Levitical priests, and to the current sacrificial system. And after all these ex explanations of Jesus' superiority, he ends with a note of encouragement, encouraging the Christians, the, the, the readers of this letter, to continue following Christ, to be faithful to him in the face of all the persecution that they're facing. <clears throat> now, this is where we will begin in the middle of verse 5. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their way of life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I'm going to read this again. This is the note of encouragement. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be misled by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Now, first we see that God will never abandon you. And then there's a warning in that last verse, immediately following the statement that Jesus does not change. The author warns not to be misled by varied and strange teachings. They have received the teaching of Christ. He does not change. Do not follow teachings that have changed from what has been shown to you here. So the takeaway for this is simple. Jesus Christ will never abandon you, for he does not change. He's always the same. And we have been given the scripture that speaks to the nature and plan of Christ, and he will not deviate from this. 
So from these three passages that we covered, these are the main takeaways. God is unchanging in his promises. God does not change his mind. God does not change his plans. God, our perception of God can change, but God does not. God does not change in regards to his justice. Christ's character and nature will not change from what we see in Scripture. And last, God will not change in his faithful commitment to his people. Okay, so now that we've identified just a few of the areas in Scripture that speak to the immutability of God, the fact that God doesn't change, I want to address at least one area that may have come to mind where it seems like God has changed. There's a couple, but we only have time for one. So uh, please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 10, and I'll have it up on the screen here as well. Now, when reading Scripture, I think it's important to understand that Scripture does not contradict itself. So if you come to a passage that seems to do that, we need to approach it mindfully. Right? So in 1 Samuel 15.10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Maybe you're familiar with this story. This is shortly after God made Saul the first human king of Israel. And he sends Saul on a mission. And during this mission, Saul disobeys a direct commandment from God. And it's after this disobedience that God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, when we think of regret, we think of it in human terms, right? We think of it in terms of not liking the outcome of something, implying that we did not know the results or that we did not expect them to be as severe as they are. In this situation, though, we know that's not the case. First, God had warned the Israelites upon giving them a human king that they weren't going to be satisfied with a human king. They weren't going to be happy with it. And next, we know that God knows all things. God has foreknowledge. So this wasn't an issue of God, something unexpected happening. We also see in the very same chapter another verse that would seem to contradict the idea that God can regret in the way that we do. In 1 Samuel 15, 29, also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Even outside of the other verses we've read, this verse adds some clarity to the situation. Obviously, the author didn't make a mistake about the nature of God, since he adds this in the same chapter, section. So if God does not change, what does it mean when God says, I regret this is what we would call an anthropomorphism. Now, an anthropomorphism is when a writer attributes human characteristics to something non-human. And in this case, the author, who is ultimately God, is trying to explain a complex issue in a way that humans can understand it. And there's a variety of anthropomorphisms throughout Scripture, right? God's arm outstretched or God whistling. Those aren't actually things he did. Um, <clears throat> a better way to look at this is that God is changing in posture because of man's behavior. For example, we are all worthy of death and the wrath of God. However, God will withhold this wrath if we have repented and been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Now, it's important to note, too, that it doesn't just say that God does not lie or change his mind, but that he is not a man. And I think this adds even more clarity to the idea that though human terminology is being used to describe God, it is not used in the same way as it is to describe man. God's regret here is to demonstrate how God's heart is grieved by Saul. 
And this is true for all of us. All of us. Our sin grieves the Lord. Okay, so we've covered just a few of the areas that speak to the immutability of God, His unchanging nature, and there's many more. Uh, but why does this matter? Why does it matter that we have a God that doesn't change, an unchanging and unchangeable God? So I want to cover just a few key considerations relating to some core aspects of the nature of God. First, we have God's omniscience. Immutability is tied to his omniscience. As we've seen in Scripture, God is all-knowing. 1 John 3.20, In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And then again in Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. God does not change his mind, because changing one's mind would imply that new information came to light, or that a circumstance changed in an unpredicted way. However, we see that God cannot learn anything new because he already knows all things, past, present, and future. And aside from Scripture telling us he is omniscient, we have seen it through the fulfillment of prophecies, and that's something we could spend a whole day on. But we're going to move on to God's perfection. As we've discussed previously, change is on a spectrum. Uh, with perfection on one end and utterly flawed at the other. For anything to change, it must move towards one side or the other, either for the better or the worse. Any change that doesn't make a difference isn't really a change at all. So the immutability of God, then, is key to his perfection. God is already perfect, and he cannot change for the better. And if he were to change for the worse, he would no longer be perfect. You cannot both be perfect and change. Change requires imperfection to move towards or away from. If God could change, it would call his perfection into question. Next, we have God's morality. Now, we know that all morality comes from God. Whether you've put your faith and trust in Christ, this is true. And we see in Matthew 5.48 that God has set the standard on perfection. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, morality, or the codes of right and wrong, they have to be compared against a standard of what right is, right? You don't need to identify all the wrongs, just the perfect standard. And in our case, this is God. God is our standard of morality. And without the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, this is obviously a standard we would never meet on our own. Okay, so God is unchanging, and all morality comes from God, uh, then morality must also be unchanging. It's an objective truth, a set standard by which every person who has ever lived or will ever live shall be compared. Now, I think this is where you might get some pushback from people, even from some who claim to be Christian. Uh, they like to believe that morality changes with society. They believe that morality is dictated by personally held convictions uh, and their perception of the effect on the well-being of humanity. Realistically, though, a view of morality like this will just follow societal norms, right? And right and wrong would just be decided by the majority. And I think there's many examples throughout history where we would view the actions of the majority as morally wrong. However, without a moral absolute, how can we even say that it was wrong, right? The majority decided then it's good for them then, but now it's bad for us. However, we know that our morality comes from God, and we can trust that it will remain the same because God is unchanging. What was moral yesterday is moral today, is moral tomorrow and forever. Now, closely tied to morality is God's justice. These two items are really intertwined. 
Because without an objective, unchanging standard of morality, how would we ever hope to have true justice? And without unchanging justice and judgment, morality loses a bit of its purpose. Think of parenting, right? It is very frustrating for a child when parents' expectations are not set, when they're unclear. It leaves them in a state of uncertainty, not knowing if their actions which pleased or upset them yesterday will have the same effect today or tomorrow. Likewise, if a parent isn't consistent in their judgment and punishments, that child may become ambivalent towards the rules. Now, either of these things are really easy to let happen and often aren't intentional. Maybe it's easier to appease a child having a tantrum one day, but the next day give them a harsh consequence. Often this is the result of our changing emotions or our physical state, right? We're stressed, we're tired, whatever it is. I mean, I know I've been guilty of this, right? One, maybe one day I'm just exhausted. And so when my son is using his rope like an Indiana Jones whip on his sister, it elicits nothing more than, no, stop it. And the next day he does the exact same thing and he gets a harsh consequence. Or maybe uh, my kid is throwing a tantrum because I said no to TV, so they get a timeout. And then the next day, they're doing the same thing, but because I'm distracted, I say, okay, and turn the TV on. Notice all of these things, though, are internal changes, right? They have no bearing on the actual moral value of the child's actions. They're just flippant responses from an inconsistent, unreliable person. Let's look outside of parenting and take into consideration all the various laws in this country, right? And not just the number of them, but their changing nature. Even laws change, right? Since 1789, Congress has enacted over 30,000 statutes, and some of these undo in part or in whole previous statutes. Not just that, but punishments for crimes change. And then in some cases, maybe a judge didn't apply the punishment fairly, Man and the institutes of man are unreliable. Thankfully, God is not a man, and we can rest in the certainty that his justice is consistent. As we read in Malachi today, the justice on this earth may not look how we want it to, but ultimately, this life on this earth is but the blink of an eye compared to eternity. And true justice, ultimate justice, will come after death. Now, this brings me to my last point, which is that we can rely on God's faithfulness. When we read in Scripture and examine the promises that God has made, I think sometimes it can be easy for us to take them for granted. Like, of course God's going to keep His promises. He's God. And this isn't wrong, right? I think sometimes, though, it can be easy to lose perspective. So, for example, I used to watch this show occasionally on the History Channel called The Strongest Man in History. And what it did is it would follow these group of strong men around the world. They would do these famous feats of strength. Things like pulling a Viking longboat, or leg-pressing a car, or carrying, strapping a piano to their back and running down the street. All of these things were impressive, but we live in an age of overstimulation, I think, and we expect to be impressed, and so to a certain degree that makes things less impressive. So in an attempt to overcome this, they would have a regular guy, the average man, they said, who would attempt the feat of strength first. He would step up to the heavy object and try to lift it and wouldn't even be able to budge this thing, right? And then these giants come up and they just pick it up like it was absolutely nothing. So that to say, I just want to give some perspective on how good people are, how good we are at keeping promises. Now, there's actually been studies done on the effectiveness of getting someone to make a promise. Now, the reason this study was done, think of it like this, right? Like a salesman comes to you, they want, you hear they're like, oh, can I get your word on that? Can I get your handshake? They, they're trying to see like, oh, get more skin in the game. How effective is that? So in this case, 
they gave participants a choice. I will give you one euro, no questions asked, you take that, you leave. Or I will give you four euro with you promising that you'll put two euro in a sealed envelope in the door on your way out, right? So there was no contractual obligation, anything like that, but they found that only 63% kept their promise, right? That's kind of higher than I really would have thought, honestly, uh, but that still means 37% didn't keep their promise. Now, obviously, this isn't perfectly analogous to real life, right? The participants knew they were part of a study. They knew that there was no real consequence for them or really the people involved. It's not a lot of money. Um, so let's take a look at another statistic, maybe. Uh, let's consider for a moment promises kept by elected officials, okay? Now, this one you can probably form some of your own opinions on. There's been some studies. They're a little tricky, but... There's a study done across a variety of countries and different levels of government, and they found that elected officials typically kept around 67% of their promises. Again, less than 70%. Now, there's probably a lot of room for error in that, lower, higher, but I'm honestly surprised it's even that high, really. That said, though, there's a lot of factors that come into politics, right? Maybe the person who's elected, they were prevented from keeping their promise by an outside uh, entity or outside power outside of their control. But regardless of whatever the cause is, the result is the same, a promise broken, right? Now, maybe these examples are too unrelatable. I can certainly understand that. So let's take a different approach. Now, I don't want to ask for a raise of hands, but just think about a time where someone broke a promise to you, or maybe take it a little bit further. Maybe it wasn't explicitly a promise, but someone didn't keep their word. They didn't do what they said they would do. Maybe they just proved to be an unreliable friend or coworker or boss or employer. Now think of a time where you were unreliable, a time where you broke a promise or went back on your word. And I think if we're all being honest, there's probably a few occasions that can come to mind. I mean, I know I can think of some. But thankfully, we know that God is not like us. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now, maybe your problem isn't taking the reliability of God for granted. Maybe it's having a hard time believing in it at all. However, throughout Scripture, God makes many promises, many of which have already been fulfilled. And even in the beginning, in Genesis, we see the first promise of a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We see the first promise of a Savior, a promise that is repeated throughout different prophecies in the Old Testament, all of which were ultimately fulfilled through Christ. Yet again, Scripture does not just tell us of the reliability of God and of His unchanging nature, but it shows it to us. Through his fulfilled promises and through his faithfulness to his people, first to the people of Israel and then to the church. So just a few other examples of promises made and kept that we can see in Scripture. So first, God promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, right? An old man, he has one son. Ultimately, though, that is fulfilled in the nation of Israel coming from Abraham. Next, we see the promise of land to the Israelites, the promised land. And that was ultimately fulfilled through the nation of Israel inhabiting the land of Canaan. And last, we see God's promise to bless the world through Abraham, a promise fulfilled through Jesus Christ the Messiah coming from Abraham's line, the nation of Israel. 
And it's not just that God made and kept these promises, but he kept each of them in a very particular way so that people couldn't look at that as mere happenstance, but as the work of God. Now, these are just a few examples of some of the promises made and kept in Scripture. And we could spend far longer discussing fulfilled prophecy, but I want to move on to just three of of the promises that God is actively fulfilling, promises for which we can all be the benefactors. So I want to begin with God, with the promise of salvation. In Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then again, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We see that God has promised salvation to anyone who believes and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, making him the Lord of their lives. The terms of our salvation are set in stone by the maker's hand and cannot be changed or undone. And last we see here in John 10, 28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not only has God promised salvation to those who believed, but he promises that nothing can take that salvation away. Next, we see the promise of help to overcome temptation. In Hebrews 2.18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to to endure it. We have the promise from an unchanging God that he will always provide a way for us to overcome temptation. It doesn't mean that we always will, but there's always a way. And that way is by relying on Christ, by listening to the Holy Spirit, by being sensitive to God's word. It's not by relying on our own strength, trying to muscle through on our own. Now, last, we have God's promise of forgiveness. In 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you've ever wronged someone and felt guilt for it, you know how badly you want that person's forgiveness. Or maybe you feel profound regret that won't go away even after they've forgiven you. Well, we have the promise that if we confess our sins to God, he will forgive us and he will cleanse us. So we can rest in knowing that these promises are guaranteed to last forever because they are made by a perfect and unchanging God. The promise of salvation, the promise of help to overcome temptation, and the promise of forgiveness. But these promises, these are all conditional promises. And what does that mean? It means that these promises are offered to anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned at the beginning how bad we are at trying to change, trying to improve ourselves, right? It's part of our sin nature, but we have a merciful God who has given us a path to salvation, a path to forgiveness, and a path to overcome temptation. And that path begins by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and making him the Lord of your life. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you want to be a benefactor of these promises then I would like to give you the opportunity to do so today. So I want to ask everyone to bow your heads, close your eyes, just create a little separation between you and the person next to you. You don't need to say anything out loud. God knows your heart. 
And you can say in your heart, God, I know that I have sinned. And I know that sin separates me from you. I know that I have done things I should not have done, and that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a perfect life and died for my sins. And then three days later, he rose, proving that he is God. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus. We thank you, God, for the promises you have given us. We thank you for being faithful, though we are stubborn and rebellious. We thank you for being unchanging. We thank you for saving us, for forgiving us, and for helping us to conquer the sin in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.